think that all of us are probably a bit worn out, even if you slept well last night. What a fantastic afternoon to be out in the sun. Such a good sport happening. I had a little push walk. I got dragged along with some little with the deer that never showed up. But this is this is a difficult time of day, though, isn't it? We're a bit drowsy. We're hungry. Ready for dinner. So I'm going to do my best as we walk through the third section that we've chosen uh, from Hebrews to keep you uh, awake and alert by doing a few things. One is by, again, reviewing but unpacking further what Hebrews unfolds for us. Uh, Another is we're going to watch a few little things to um, make some points. And the third is I, again, want to maybe provoke you a little bit to think, and uh, particularly some of the things that I might say uh, as we get towards the end of this session, I want you to hear uh, with an open mind, uh, because they might not fit with uh, some of the things you think, and it might not be the only way to think, but I'm going to go ahead and make some specific sorts of suggestions and applications to uh, draw you out a little bit, so that either today or in coming weeks, you'll have more to talk about in your discussion groups and your congregation. By the way, also thank you for those of you who I got to speak with a bit this afternoon. I uh, heard some really good questions and encouraging testimonies and responses, and it was really a joy to get to speak to some of you uh, and hear about what's going on in your lives and in the church. It's, a, it's really encouraging uh, to be with you and part of this group this weekend. Thank you again. Well, this morning, uh, in the two sessions, we took a look at two key passages in Hebrews, and we focused on what they draw out for us about Christ's present ministry. The first one, we saw that Christ is that word God has spoken definitively, and he's the one who's seated in heaven, and it's from there that he exercises his ministry for us now. In the second passage, we saw that he is not only a king, he's a high priest, a wonderful high priest, who knows us, who knows our weaknesses, who can therefore minister to us very compassionately, and he is the mediator of a better time and its benefits to us. So with that in the background, we come now to chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, to draw out more of the implications of our mediator's ministry for us. And not only for us personally, individually, but for us corporately as a church, as a congregation, but also as a larger group, as we are this weekend, together as a church. And again, we're going to see that images from the Old Testament and from its history are directed for us to Jesus in their final fulfillment so that we might understand his ministry better. So we've heard the text. Let's go ahead and dive into the details of the text. You notice how wonderfully it reviews, again, this idea, and thank you for pointing that out from the interview there. Hebrews does, it it brings you along with it. Look at the review that we get right away in in chapter 10, verse 19. Since, you see the two senses, since Jesus has made it possible for us to enter God's presence with confidence, and since he is such a great high priest for us. It reviews what's come before, because it's absolutely essential that we've got that in hand before we hear what follows. Because what follows is a series of commands, of exhortations. We get now down to the nitty-gritty of what we need to do. There's work that needs to be done by us. But it needs to be done 
in response to and standing on the basis of what has come before. If we try to do this work without standing on Christ's finished work, without depending on his ministry for us, we will fail. If we try to do these things in order to please God, forgetting that Jesus has already pleased God on our behalf, we will fail. So, we've got to start with the senses. And that's where Hebrews takes us. And then beginning in verse 22, on through the end in verse 25, we see these three results of Jesus' ministry, which are applied to us as commands, as exhortations. Three let us phrases. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. And rephrase those just so that we can maybe remember them a bit better. Let us come, let us cling, and let us consider. This is the message of our passage. It's a challenge to us to move from what Jesus has done for us, to realize he's still working on our behalf, and to get to work by coming, clinging, and considering. These are things that we are enabled to do and commanded to do on the basis of what Christ has done and is doing. So the first one is come. Come. And do you see where it is that we're supposed to come, to draw near? We're supposed to come into the very temple presence of God, into that sanctuary, the heavenly tent. We saw the little 3D model of the tabernacle, the tent, as you move all the way into that holy of holies, that place where God's visible glory spirit dwells. But now, we're told by Hebrews, there's no longer an earthly tent. It's not a church building where God's spirit dwells, especially. God's in heaven. And that's what that picture was meant to point us to. And Jesus has gone there. That's why in chapter 1 it's so important to understand that Jesus is seated bodily, physically, in his new body, his resurrection body, in heaven. And he's gone there, Hebrews tells us, so that we can follow in his train, so that we can now draw near. And as he has gone, he's opened up a new and a living way. In the first century context, this language of a new and a living way had some very tangible connotations for the first hearers of this letter. A new and living way was opened when you inaugurated a new road leading from one city to another city. So we have, uh, we have instances of this in the first century where if the Caesar, the emperor, dedicates a new road, pours a lot of expense into it, paves it with marble beautifully, and then you go from city to city safely, it's uh, it's got water stations laid out along the way so that you can travel in relative comfort. This is a way that is opened by the emperor. But Hebrews tells us there's a far greater way that has been opened for us, not from city to city, but from earth to heaven. We have a way that we right now on earth can enter into God's presence in heaven. It's a road that has been opened up for us, a way by Jesus, a royal road that we are beckoned to follow him on, beckoned to draw near. Now, I, would, I want to show you something here. So here's the first thing to keep you awake. This is a little cheesy. Uh, it's, it's from a movie that I saw probably at the end of high school. Um, some of you may have, have watched a spin-off series. I've never seen the series that came off this. This is a movie called Stargate, the sci-fi movie. But bear with me here. There's a point to this. I want you to watch it, and then we'll talk about it. 
<laughs> sometimes yeah. science fiction has a way of helping us visualize things about moving from one world to another world. And I think in this case, it's actually very helpful. What's going on there in the movie, and you can go watch it if you're a sci fi fan, if you're not, don't worry about it, is that they've figured out this ancient hieroglyphic symbols to uh, put together the stargate that actually functions, to take them from one place in the universe all the way through to another. They're actually going to the heavens through this portal that has opened up. It's, it's a bit cheesy, it's science fiction, but it makes the point for us that this text, I think, is trying to make that there's a new and real living way opened up for us. We can actually go from Earth to heaven, right now, on the basis of Christ's work for us. We are invited to draw near, to come into God's heavenly presence, no matter where we find ourselves here on Earth. That's pretty amazing. That's actually astounding that we can tread this new and living way. It's a living way because it's a way that leads us to God's presence not to receive curse and wrath and condemnation that we deserve as sinners, but to, to, to receive the life and the blessing that Jesus has won for us. That when we arrive there in that holy presence, we know our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. That to come into his presence as a sinner is to be destroyed. And yet we can come and find life when we come in the train of our king and our priest, the Lord Jesus. So we are commanded, exhorted to draw near. To draw near. Jesus has, if you remember this tabernacle tent image, Jesus has done several things as, us, as our high priest for us. He has done these things by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. He has provided safe access because he covers our sin. He's provided us with safe access because he has borne our curse. And he's provided us with safe access because he is perfectly faithful as our representative. For all these reasons, Hebrews says, draw near, draw near to the very presence of God. And this is why in verse 22 it says that we can come now, not with fear and trembling, not with a dread, but with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with clean consciences, pure and holy before God. This is the way now, because of what Jesus has done, that we can come into the heavenly presence of God. And that is an amazing result of Christ's work for us. Each of these aspects of how we ought to draw near addresses something that is difficult for us if we are true in our examination of ourselves. Because we know our false hearts are not true hearts. We know in our consciences the sins that we have committed. We know that we are not worthy to draw near. And yet, the work of Christ for us, both his work that's been finished on the cross in the resurrection, and his present work of applying that to us, is what Hebrews says beckons us to draw near with a clean clean conscience. But how do we come? How do you actually draw near? How do you go from earth to heaven, even if there's a gate or a portal that's been opened? How do you go through it? Well, 
One way that scripture teaches us that we enter into God's presence is through prayer. When we pray, we enter into the very throne room of God. Do you think about prayer like that? How do you think about prayer? Let's think together about it for just a moment. And here I want to use some of the resources historically that the church has used in order to help teach us what the scriptures say about prayer. Some of those resources come to us in the form of creeds and catechisms the church has used. So we're going to be bringing some of those in. One of those says that prayer is actually a main part of our thankfulness to God. If you are thankful for what God has done for you in Christ, then the best way you can show your thankfulness is to pray. Of course, singing is a form of prayer. When we sing praises to God, it's addressing Him in a prayer that has music put to it. But there are, as we come in prayer, our hearts are meant to be increasingly thankful for what God has done for us. Another resource that we have at our disposal for understanding what prayer is, is in Hebrews itself. We looked at this earlier in chapter 4, verse 16, that when we draw near to the throne of grace, we know that it is a throne of grace, and we receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Calvin, to whom I referred earlier this morning, has this wonderful thing to say about prayer. He says, true prayer ought to be nothing else but a pure affection of our heart as it is about to draw near to God. We pour out our prayers. A pure affection. The way we express our thankfulness and our love to God. Another resource comes to us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Those, anyone who's been a Presbyterian at any point might know the Westminster Catechisms. Question 98 says this, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. But here is maybe my favorite. I'll put part of this up on, on screen here in a moment. This is the Heidelberg Catechism. If you ever want to begin exploring the catechisms that the church, the Protestant church has used since the Reformation, I love the Westminster standards being Presbyterian, but Heidelberg maybe trumps it. Maybe it's really good. The Heidelberg Catechism is, is so sweet. And this is what it says about prayer in question 117. The question is, how does God want us to pray so that he will listen? That's a great question. Well, it says two things before we get to the third. First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the true God who has revealed himself in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask for. We hear God's word, and then we respond in prayer. Second, we must acknowledge our need and misery, hiding nothing and humbling ourselves in his majestic presence. But here's the sweetest part, I think. And this is what you see here. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation, even though we do not deserve it. God will surely listen to our prayers because of Christ, our Lord. That's why he hears. That is what he has promised us, the Heidelberg Catechism says, in his word. Draw near with a pure heart, pouring out your heart in thankfulness to God because of the work of Christ. Only because of his work. But do it boldly. So when you pray, pray not only in Christ's name, as we often finish our prayers in the name of Christ, but pray on the basis of Christ's work for you. 
his ministry for you, knowing that he has opened a new and living way. But we also draw near to Christ, not only through prayer, but in worship, don't we? Now, here's where I might start to touch a few little nerves, and um, it's all right if, if you feel that way. In fact, I'd be happy to talk about it with you. And I hope you talk about it with each other. What is worship? How do we draw near to God in worship? Well, I want to start with at least what we might call formal corporate worship. That, that is, when you gather together on Sunday, historically what Christians have called the Lord's Day, when you gather together and the minister stands up and starts things rolling. Now, this looks a lot of different ways, doesn't it? And in fact, we've got four, right? Four different ways that it looks, even amongst the people gathered here. And that's a great thing. But when you gather together in that context, there is something extraordinary that happens. God promises this. Because when you gather together and the minister calls you to worship by reading scripture, opening with prayer, pronouncing the words that God has given us, calling us into his presence, we actually go. We ascend to heaven as we gather to worship together to the very throne room of God. And our worship service is held there. You don't see that with your eyes, do you? You can't, you can't see the throne invisibly yet. We will. But that's what's happening. And when you think in those terms, the terms scripture gives us, it reshapes the way you think about worship, or should. Because coming to God in worship is, is doing this. It's drawing near to the very heavenly throne of God. That has implications we can chase in lots of different directions for our attitude, for our posture as we come to worship, for how we listen, for how we prepare ourselves for worship, for the gravity that there is in worship, for the joy that there is in worship, all kinds of implications. But the point I want to press today is that this is one way when we gather in formal corporate worship together, that we draw near to the very throne of God in heaven. He draws us up. He brings us to Him. He promises to do this. As we hear his word proclaimed, as we sing our praise, as we pray together, and even, and perhaps powerfully in ways that we haven't always considered, even as we come, we take the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. Now, I would imagine, I don't know for sure, I haven't asked the Rogers this, but I would imagine that looks also different across the four different congregations here, as it does across all the churches, and that's fine too. But I hope... I hope you regularly do that. I hope you do. I'm sure you do. That you take the bread and the wine, because this is one of those beautiful ways that God has promised to draw us near to himself and to seal to our hearts, our consciences, the work of Christ, to point us by these tangible elements, something we can see, touch, taste, feel, smell, that reminds us the promise is real. The promise is real, and we're actually there in the throne of it, being strengthened in the presence of God. We draw near boldly when we come. So when you hear those words pronounced, take me, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. It's true. And it's the words that the minister has been given by the one standing right behind him. And when you hear those words, take and drink this. This is my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. It's true. It's true. 
And in the presence of God, who himself is declaring that to you and communicating the power of that blessing to you. There are great mysteries there. And I don't pretend that we've touched on all of them. But I do want you to think about worship in a different way, perhaps. A powerful way. A way you draw near to the presence of God to receive the ministry of Christ. <coughs> well, we have to move on. That's the first one. Come. Come. Come to God's presence, your community. The second is cling. Cling. Hold fast. And what is it we're to cling to? The confession of our hope. Well, tomorrow morning's sermon, we're going to consider some more of the ways that it is very difficult. There are a lot of challenges to cling. A lot of things that work against us in our lives to try to prize our grip away from Christ and from what it is that we confess about the faith. We'll think more about that tomorrow. But here, in verse 23, we want to know two aspects very briefly. First of all, we're to cling to our confession. Our confession. What is it that we confess? What is it to confess? Well, this is one of those beautiful ways Scripture talks about our response to God's speech. Remember, God speaks first. He gets the first word. His speech has priority. But he never wants it to just evaporate into thin air. He wants a response. And the response of thankfulness, the response of a heart that inclines to him by faith, is a response of confession, confessing what it is that we believe to be true in Christ. We're told in Scripture we confess with our hearts, we confess with our mouths, we confess with our minds. All of us is involved, the whole person, in this confession. And all of us needs to be involved in clinging to that confession as well. And verse 23 says, the danger is wavering. We have to cling without wavering, because it's very easy to waver, isn't it? On all of those levels, it's easy to waver in our heart, our affections, the things that we desire and love. It's easy to waver in our minds, the things that we understand, the doubts that we have. And it's easy to waver, sometimes, with our mouths and our lives. Because we might confess it when we gather together, but then we go out in our work week, and it's a bit harder, isn't it, sometimes, to confess that publicly. We're all, I think, faced with those challenges of wavering. But Hebrews says, cling, cling and hold fast to our confession on the basis of what Christ has done, and he's working for you right now. Cling, hold fast. It's coming in just a moment as we move to the end this afternoon. But one of the great ways we can help each other to do this, because this is something we do in community as well. Second aspect from verse 23. You see it right there, the last half of verse 23, tucked in the middle of the entire section. It's a beautiful reminder, because the author gets going. He gets going and he says, Sense this, and sense this, let us, let us, let us. But right in the middle, because it's, it's long phrases, he's, he's, you know, he's laying it on a bit, a little literary flair, and he's really developing it. And in case we get lost along the way, he injects right here in the middle to anchor the whole thing. For he who promised is faithful. Remember? Remember what we talked about with chapter 8. It's better promises. It's the promises of God and the work of Christ that we depend on, that we stand on, that are our anchor. Just in case we were tempted to forget, in the middle of these commands, let us, let us, let us, there it is, right in the middle. 
For he who promised is faithful. We cling because God has promised to help us. He's promised to do the work with us and for us. So we cling with great hope because we know that God who promises is faithful. The third thing then, after come, after cling, is consider. And here is where, in verse 24, we really have a shift. We have a shift in the whole book of Hebrews, I would say, but certainly in this passage. And we have a shift decidedly towards the corporate, away from thinking about just ourselves to thinking about the entire group. Now, Hebrews has actually laid the groundwork here as well. There are other places in which it's done that, and we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. But here, we definitely shift towards thinking as a group, the community of the church, about how we do these things. So the let us consider of verse 24, then is going to carry us all the way through the end of verse 25. And we can see that in the way it develops. Let us consider three things. First, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how not to neglect the gathering together, the meeting together, as is the habit of some. And third, let us consider how we might encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. This is a consideration that isn't just intellectual. We sang that wonderful old hymn in the new dress about offering our minds and our intellect to God, which is a wonderful thing. He wants it. He wants all that we can give him of our intellect. But it's not just intellectual, this consideration. It's a consideration that issues in action, that issues in doing something as we consider these things. And we consider them in the context of community. Hebrews has already laid the groundwork, as I just mentioned, for thinking in terms of not just I, but we. Where do we see that? We see that in several places. I'll highlight just a few. In chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention. In 3, 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you, plural, consider Jesus. And then a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, today if you, plural, hear his voice. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters, plural, lest there be any of you, plural, an evil and unbelieving heart. And we could go on. These are things that draw us together as a community. They're in the plural. And so when we get here to chapter 10, it's natural, actually, that the author says, let us consider these things together, and how we can do this together. So let's do that. In Hebrews chapter 13, we get a little glimpse of some of the cultural ridicule that the first Christians might have faced, particularly those who were Jewish Christians. And we're certain that many of those who heard this first letter were Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the old way of doing it in Judaism. And the author knew some of the ridicule they faced. And some of you may have also faced this kind of ridicule as you publicly confess your faith in Christ. Well, in chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, you hear this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. We will face cultural ridicule as we do this, but we don't do this alone. We do this in community. And the place that we do this is in the church. That's where we consider. Is this how you think about the church? As a place where you can come to consider how to do these things? 
stirring one another up, encouraging one another, not neglecting me together. Is that how you think about church? I hope so. And I hope you'll think more so about it in those ways. Let me offer just a few suggestions and maybe um, here's where I don't mean to offend, but I will I will press a bit more here on this point, especially the second point. The point of not neglecting the meeting together with one another. Particularly on that Lord's Day worship. Sunday worship. Now, I don't know uh, all of you and all of your situations, and so I want you to take take that as as the first caveat here. But what I do know uh, is that I certainly know American culture well, so I'll speak from experience there. And I know a little bit over the last three years of Australian culture by observation. Sometimes outsiders can see things that you can't see. You know, even if you travel away, you go to the UK and you come back home, you see things differently than when you had never left before. So I'm not pretending to be a, a perfect cultural analyst here, but there are a few things I've seen that might make it difficult for us Americans and Australians to gather together, not to neglect gathering together for worship. Here are a few. Here's been the most controversial. Have you ever put leisure, sport, before attendance to worship? I suspect some of us have. And in my sense, that's that's a particularly Australian temptation, actually. Maybe I'm wrong in that. But I think that uh, there is a sense in which Sunday is very negotiable for some people. And that's fair enough, because it's obviously negotiable for the culture. That's that's the day, right? I mean, that's the day. You go out Friday night, you can go out Saturday night. Sunday, you can just kind of chill, you can go to the beach. You can even in Sydney, right? Monday, Sunday. It's the cheapest day to travel with a family. It's the easiest day for us to get our whole big family around the city for cheap. There are a lot of reasons that could easily encroach on seeing Sunday as the day when the action is happening, it's invisible action to our to our eyes, but it's happening when we gather together in worship. So we need to be challenged, perhaps, in some of those ways. Well, here's another thought. Uh, we we heard already in the interview some of the wonderful things going on, and I want to definitely affirm those the clustering, the bread, <laughs> the clustering that's beginning to take place. That's fantastic. Because that is where often you find real community in a human sense, right? When you connect to people in relationship, when you get to have coffee, when you get to have dinner, when you don't just meet together, boom, 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 go through an agenda and then walk away. You can't build relationships without that. But, let me suggest, small groups, clusters, and whatever we like to call them, are not the same as the kind of action that happens when God calls us to worship, when we gather together on Sunday. Now, it's controversial, and you don't have to agree with me, but I want to throw it out there as a thought for you. Because if when we hear the word of God proclaimed by the minister, God has promised to particularly bless that and use that powerfully in our lives, and if when we see that bread and that wine, this signs of God's grace to us. He has particularly blessed that as a way for us to receive the benefits of Christ's ministry. If those are true, you grant those premises, then that's where I would be. That's where I would be to receive everything I can get because I need it so desperately. 
That's where I want to be to grow in my faith. And I want to do that in community, the community of the church. It doesn't mean that I want to neglect small groups and Bible studies. We have one that meets fortnightly at our house. And it's fantastic. It's some of the dearest friends that we've made in our three years in Sydney. And we had to farewell some of them recently. And that's a really sad time because those relationships are rich. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to elevate that above what I get when I come Sunday morning to worship because of the way God's word unfolds what's happening there. So there's a thought for you. Go away and debate. <laughs> There's something else that makes it hard sometimes for us to do these things in community, and that is our own expectations of what community should look like. And I think there's at least one Bonhoeffer, right, scholar here? There's several people who know Bonhoeffer, so I'm stepping into territory that's not my, not, I'm not an expert in, but I love, I love what I know of Bonhoeffer. I know that when I first read his book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know the name, was one of the wonderful leaders of the the church in Nazi Germany, one of the ones who stood up to the Nazis, and he gave his life for it in the end. He was the real deal. He was authentic. And one of the little books he wrote is a book called Life Together, Life in Christian Community. And Bonhoeffer has this to say to us about our expectations of what church should be. He says in Life Together, Will not the very moment of great disillusionment with my brother or sister be incomparably wholesome for me, because it so thoroughly teaches me that both of us can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed that really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The bright day of Christian community dawns wherever the early morning mists of dream visions are lifting. In other words, if you expect the church to be a place where you're not bumping up against other people's sin, with your own sin, and there's conflict, and there's friction, and it's not perfect, and not all the style matches what you expect, then you have an illusion in mind of what the church will be. It's an early morning mist that needs to be dispersed by the light of true community, which is not rooted in natural human affinity but rather in what God has done for us in Christ. Part of Christ's ministry for us is gathering us together as a body that otherwise would never be together. And it's a beautiful thing. But it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not an easy thing, is it? In that sense. So don't let that keep you from coming together, from meeting together, from encouraging one another as you gather together. Consider how you may not neglect gathering together. Now I'll loop back very quickly to the other two, and we'll wrap up with this. How can we stir up one another to love and good works? Well, the reason I put this one second is that obviously if you're going to stir one another up, you have to be with one another. So you've got to gather together in order to do these other two things. It just won't happen otherwise. You can't virtually stir each other up. I'm sorry. Well, you could. You could stir something up, but not right away. And that's the sort of thing when I say to my boys, don't stir each other up. That's not, the, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about provoking in a good way, of pushing, prodding, gently, in relationship, together in community, pushing one another, sometimes uncomfortably perhaps, but in love, in the ways that we need to be pushed, and particularly towards Christ. 
pushing people to consider Christ's work. Having conversations that get around, eventually, at least, to Christ's work for us. It's very difficult, in some cases, to speak about spiritual things, isn't it? It's almost easier sometimes to speak about anything else, even with believing friends, even in the church. But our conversation should be encouraging in pointing us to the work of Christ on our behalf. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, uh, this the same word shows up there in the negative sense, but it gives us a contrast to understand it by. There Paul says that true love, true love in the context of the body of Christ, the church, the community that Christ creates, true love doesn't stir up by doing what? By resentfully keeping track of personal faults or wrongs that are done to you. That's not the kind of stirring up. That's the opposite of what this means. Instead, we're supposed to stir each other up by forgetting those things and pointing one another to Christ. Or, even better, by hearing those things from one another. Hearing the struggles, hearing what's going on and the failures, and then pointing your brother or sister back to Christ and his work. That's the way we're meant to stir each other up. And it's supposed to issue, supposed to be done in love, but to issue in good works. And this is the exciting part, I think. It's all exciting, but this is a really exciting part because now we have broken out of not just Christ's work for us personally and Christ's work for us as a community of believers in the church, but now it begins to overflow into the neighborhood. This is, this is the movement that should be taking place. As we stir each other up to love in this way, to point to Christ in this way, it issues in good works, in love for our neighbors. I was astonished by some of those statistics on the sheet last night as we were praying for Newtown and Erskineville. I, I knew, I know a little bit about praying here and where you worship, but some of that was eye-opening to me. What a fantastic context to be living and worshiping in, where so many people are hungry and in desperate need for the truth of the gospel, to hear what Christ has done for them. Well, as we stir each other up, it ought to overflow in those directions. Martin Luther, another great reformer, said, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. And that's, I think, a way to keep it in mind, that as we are pointed to the work of Christ on our behalf, and we're so thankful we're going to do things, we're going to serve in various ways, well, that, let that push us outward in loving our neighbors and having those conversations around the community. Oh, there's more to say here. We'll come back tomorrow to some of this in the morning. The final thing that we need to close with is, how do we consider encouraging one another? Many ways that we could do this. But listen to what comes at the end of chapter 10. Listen to what the author had in mind for his first hearers, and then let's think about it for us. At the end of chapter 10, in verses 32 to 39, you read this. But recall the former days, so sometime before this letter, this sermon letter was sent, when, after you were enlightened, you become believers, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Some of these believers were evidently being thrown into prison for their faith. This isn't just a general prison ministry he's talking about, although that's a good thing. This was, this was believers who are struggling because of that thrown into prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. We don't live in this kind of culture, do we? Thank the Lord. But some 
around the world do, some Christians still. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the one, the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I think that should be a little sobering to us. But the kind of pressures that were being faced by people who first heard this, in many ways are greater than the pressures we feel. We feel our own pressures, and they're great in our lives. And they're, they're very different, though, in this culture. What are some of those pressures, and how can we encourage one another? Do we have this kind of persecution? Or do we have other kinds of persecution for our faith? Real and obvious needs of the members of our congregations that need attended to? Is there a real tendency or possibility of some that you know in a congregation that you worship with who might be tempted to drift away, who hasn't shown up in a while? You haven't seen them around in quite a while. Well, that's, that's a great place to begin, to be encouraging one another, going after that person in love. We'll come back to some of this language of endurance tomorrow morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 12. But I want to end this, uh, this thought here tonight with one major way we can encourage one another on the basis of Christ's work, his past work, and his present ministry for us, is to point each other to Christ's future work. Did you catch how chapter 10 ended there? It ended with looking forward, looking forward to the certain return of Christ for his people. There is no question. Yes, we don't know when. It may or may not be in our lifetimes, but Christ will return because he promised to return for his people. That is certain. And when he comes, Hebrews says, it's given once to a man to live, and once to die, and then after that, the judgment. And so we know there's only one shot at life. We know that. And for our brothers and sisters who might be drifting away, we need to grab hold of them in love. And we need to think about that future coming of Christ in glory, and the judgment it will bring. And we want to bring them back, bring them back to the faith by pointing them to Christ's work. And it's an encouragement to us as well as we think of Christ's future coming because we know, we know the victory that you will bring. More about that tomorrow as well. So let me conclude with this today. We've seen this morning in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that God has graciously spoken clear word that he has recorded for us in understandable form that teaches us about who he is about what he desires, about what he requires, and best of all, about what he gives in Christ. His definitive word is spoken in Christ. And that Christ, that Son of God, is seated with a body in heaven. And it's from there he ministers to us. And then we looked at how Christ is a great high priest. He's such a great high priest in all the ways Hebrews unfolds that. And now this afternoon, we've moved on from Christ's past work and Christ's present ministry to us 
to the response that it ought to call for, to the challenge, command that God gives us. Let us do these three things. Let us come, let us cling, and let us consider. And let's do that together as the community that God has brought into existence from the close of the earth. Lord, prayer, if talking to you, if approaching your throne of grace, is, as your word claims, a wonderful way for us to express our thanks and our joy that you have saved us in Christ. That we come with hearts full of joy and full of thanksgiving into your very presence. We thank you for the privilege that we can draw near to find life. And we pray that as we work together in the community of your church, that we would consider carefully how we can encourage one another, that we would be faithfully together, and that we would expect you to keep your precious promises to us. Promises which were sealed on the cross of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Then break up for our small group sitting in now. Um, and then dinner is at 6.15. Uh, once we've had the meal, we've got an evening with Chris.